I, uh, it's crazy to think, Shay, I saw you uh, shake your head. Was, it, was I right when I said it was been 55 weeks? 55 weeks. I've been thinking uh, this week as we are, are thinking or we're getting ready to have folks in the room next week, uh, what an odd feeling that's going to be. I'm probably going to have to make sure Tanner doesn't ride his bike in the middle of church. Um, and yet, maybe not. Maybe that's exactly what should be happening. I, uh, I've been thinking about this last year and, and how uh, last year at this time, there was so much unknown coming up to Easter. There was still even in our heads, like, is there any way we could maybe have people back in church by Easter? Little did we know a year ago at this time, we wouldn't have people back for 50-some weeks. I went yesterday just for the fun of it and uh, looked at, at our, our Palm Sunday service last year at this time. Uh, so much has changed. First of all, it was a really bad sermon. I, I watched three minutes of the sermon and I turned it off. I, thanks to those of you who put up with it last Palm Sunday. But last Sunday at this time, I, my hair wasn't even long enough to uh, use, uh, what was I starting with, Sarah? A headband. I wasn't even using a headband this time last year. Last year at this time, we hadn't quite figured out, well, other than uh, worship leaders turning their mics off, we hadn't quite figured out the sound, so the sound was really weird. Last year at this time, we had one camera, so as much as I'm looking forward right now, I actually have no idea if it's the forward camera. Okay, so we, yeah, last year it was so much simpler. Think about, all that, uh, think about all that's gone on in the last year. A pandemic. I remember, how, how long ago was it, Josh and Sarah, that we came over to your house prior to everything just going crazy, and we said, this is probably it for a while. Think about the last year, all the uncertainties of, should I go to the grocery store, should I not? Those initial days of, should I wear a mask to the grocery store? What if I wear a mask? Will people make fun of me? I'm not quite comfortable wearing a mask, but now, will we ever go to the grocery store without a mask? Think about a year ago, Ah, so much has changed. Phrases that we hadn't maybe thought about a lot have become uh, phrases that define our culture. Phrases like, I can't breathe. Phrases like, stop Asian hate. We think about, think about even what's happened in the last year. We've had an election where so many of us have felt like we're going against each other. We think about another shooting. We think about people in their homes just wondering, how am I going to pay for the next grocery bill or the next power bill or pay my mortgage? Will I have a job? It's been so crazy to just think about all that's gone on. And so I come to a day like this, Palm Sunday, I come to a, a week like this, Holy Week, where, where inevitably I find myself asking questions like, does this story we're about to tell, does it have something to say to a world that experienced all that we've experienced in the last year? Is this story still relevant? Does it still have a word to speak? Does it still have an edge to to poke and prod, or is this simply a story from a long time ago, and we've done our best at keeping it going, and, and its time has come and gone? Hint, hint, I, I want to say it still has a word to say. But if so, if we really believe that, then what is it? 
What does this Holy Week story, what does this Palm Sunday story have to say to a world who's gone through a pandemic, to a world that wonders, will they still be able to breathe, to a world that has to say phrases like, stop hating that community or that community? What does Palm Sunday have to say? What does Easter have to say? What does the cross have to say? I've been wondering that this week. I actually, just hint, hint, some of you will be disappointed. I wasn't scheduled to preach today. We were supposed to do a big old panel discussion, and then um, everything, it just got crazy. My parents decided to go to Idaho to visit their second favorite child. Um, Pastor Mark and Pastor Regina got called to, to North Seattle to fill in, and, and, and Lorenzo decided that he had somewhere to, so we just, we, uh, we did some curveballs. And so as I was thinking then, what do I say? I was just struggling with what is there to say? And then this corny old Jesus song came into my head this week, and I'm going to butcher it, so hopefully some other people will remember it. But do you guys remember the song, tell me the story of Jesus, right on my, yeah, every word, okay, does anybody remember that besides Laura, am I the only one, Sarah, Josh, tell me the story most precious, sweetest that ever what? Okay, okay, give me a thumbs up or a like if you remember that song. I know Marilyn, she's old, she'd remember that song. <laughs> and so I found myself this morning driving around Alki with that song in my head, 5.30 in the morning, thinking these thoughts, what does it mean to tell the story of Jesus? So this morning I want to tell the story. But to do that, we got to get nerdy. i got some people in the house, so bear with me. I, I, my glasses are broke, so I can't really see them, so I'm just going to trust that um, uh, they're paying attention. But let's read the story, and then let's tell the story, and let's have some fun with the story, and let's ask, ultimately, does the story have anything to say to us? All right? Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through, I think, like 11. And get ready for those of you who are coming next week. And by the way, if you're not ready to come yet, totally cool. So please, if you're at home, do not feel the pressure to come. Um, we will be live streaming, and we totally, 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 totally get that. 11, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and you will send it back here shortly. They went ahead and found a colt outside the street tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus told them to the people, uh, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and, the, um, and threw their cloaks on it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of the father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yes, Tanner probably did break them again. 
So if we think this story has something to say, what is it that it has to say? I, wanna, I, wanna, I don't have a ton of time, but, but I want to I go back to the Old Testament for a little bit. I think it's foundational to the way we read the Bible to understand that God has invited a people to a universal story. And he uses a universal story where, where, where God is calling a certain people to live in such a way that out of the way they form their, themselves, form themselves in relationship to the divine, but also then form themselves communally, that out of that they will become a blessing to the world. And that blessedness has no borders. That the call of the people of God is to bless the whole world. As you read the Old Testament then, what we find is that this calling is often... Um, it often is sacrificed for other stories that are being told. Namely, stories about borders, stories about power, stories about horses, which was essentially their uh, tank, uh, stories about gold and treasure and prosperity. And so the tension for Israel, the people of God, is are we going to live the story of being a blessing? Or are we going to live the story of just blessing ourselves? And we've, we've told this story before, so we know how that story goes. Eventually, that story leads them, well, it leads them to David and, and Solomon being essentially the next Pharaoh. They sacrifice the blessing story to bless themselves, and ultimately, that leads them into exile, where they split and they, they lose their sense of identity, and with it, their sense of calling. And so when we read the Old Testament prophets, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, different places, what you see is, is the prophets speaking into, well, why did we go that route? Why did things crumble for us? Why did we find ourselves in exile? And inevitably, time and time again, the things they say is, well, we, we failed to take care of the widows. We failed to take care of the immigrants. We failed to take care of the poor. We failed to act justly and love mercy. And at the same time, they begin to envision a future that if God will give us another chance, this is what it might look like. It'll be a peaceable kingdom. It'll be, it'll be a place where we are giving ourselves to justice, mercy, love, blessing. But we know the story doesn't go exactly how they would have written it. They, they kind of, if you get to the Old Testament, they kind of get out of exile. They kind of get to go back to their land, and they kind of get to build a temple. But but really, you have a bunch of peasants who aren't that wealthy, and so the temple they built is, is it's very small compared to the temple that, that David and Solomon had built. And, and at the, as much as they're kind of independent, they're not. They're still under other rulers. Certainly, they get about a 100-year period. The Maccabeans come, and, and, and they get to rule Israel for about 100 years. But, but inevitably, it, uh, Rome comes and squashes them. And so the history of Israel is, is really this failed history of a calling that they have sacrificed because they wanted to be like everyone else, and instead they became under the rule of everyone else. And the deep cry, God, would you just let us try again? Would you let us build the temple again? Would you let us, would you let us make Jerusalem what it was supposed to be again? And side note, the temple in Jerusalem was supposed to be God's city. The temple was supposed to be the place where heaven and earth met. The, the temple was supposed to be where forgiveness was extended to the whole world. And so the cry of the Hebrew people was, God, give us another chance, give us another chance. But when we get to the time of Jesus, we don't, we don't really see another chance. What we see is Rome in charge. Now, Rome plays the politics game really, really good. I can't help, Josh, you, I, I forget, did, how much of House of Cards did you watch? Did you, you watch some of it? Yeah. Rome plays like a House of Cards type of politics. Rome is brutal. 
They're violent. They're oppressive. They sell people into slavery. They're, I mean, they're the worst of the worst. They're, they're taxed the poor people so the rich can get really, really rich. But when they do that, then they can provide peace. And so Rome comes in, and after they've demolished everyone, killed a bunch of people, sold a bunch of people into slavery, then they play nice guy. And so they'll go to the, the, to the, to the leading kind of rich community that is left, and they'll say, hey, if you will collaborate with Rome, if you'll pay tribute to Rome, if you'll worship Caesar to an extent, we will allow you to kind of run shot here. And so at the time of Jesus, you've had, you've had this, this, these, these times where, where Rome has been experimenting with, okay, we're going to let the high priest run things, we're going to let the temple leaders run things. Okay, that didn't work very well. Now we're going to bring in this guy named Herod. He's going to run things. Only Herod just turns like house of cards on steroids. Herod kills all, or a bunch of the leaders and puts in his own people who owe him favors. Herod is super paranoid, so he spies on people. Herod has only his own family members killed because he's not sure if they might like, try to take over. Herod taxes and taxes and taxes so Herod can like build a cabin at Lake Tahoe and a cabin on the East Coast and a cabin in Key West and a cabin in Hollywood. And so Herod's really good at the politics game. But then, eventually, Herod dies. And you've got to figure out, like, what are we going to do next? And when Herod dies, there's another uprising. Because the people who are taxed, these people who used to own their own land, they now become peasants. They don't have enough food for their plates. And so there becomes a little bit of an uprising. And Rome, for the first time in a long time, has to come in and squash it. We're told of one story, and I'm convinced my dad has been telling this story for years. I just haven't paid attention until I read it in a book this week. So I'm going to claim I learned it from the book, not my dad, because I want to get the credit, not him. But there's the story of, uh, uh, of Rome during this uh, rebellion coming in and squashing this town called Sephoris and just killing a ton of folks and squashing the city, crucifying at one time 2,000 people as a way of flexing their muscles to say, if you really want to go against us, this is what we will do. It was their version of an atom bomb, and they dropped it. And the people that didn't die, they sold to slavery. The town was ruined. This was the politics game of Jesus' day. It's interesting that this town of Sephoris, you may have heard of this other town, was four miles from a small little peasant village named Nazareth. A small little peasant village named Nazareth where maybe a five or six-year-old or seven or eight-year-old son of a carpenter was growing up who would have undoubtedly heard what those who were in charge were doing to the peasant folks the killing, the slavery. Probably undoubtedly would have had friends and family members who were people they would have known who, who were going without food on their plate because Rome was taxing too much. The temple was taxing too much on Rome's behalf. And so it's not hard as, as, as we imagine the gospel story that Mark is telling to understand that Jesus' worldview was shaped in a world where there were those who had lots of power and those who had lots of wealth, and then there was this peasant class who had nothing, whose lives seemingly were not as important as those who had privilege. So we shouldn't wonder, why does Mark start his gospel? He doesn't start the gospel with a Christmas story. We get no shepherds in Mark. We get no wise men in Mark. We get no story of Mary in Mark. Mark starts the gospel by saying, this is about the kingdom of God, which to us sounds nice and spiritual, but in that day, 
to use the word kingdom, well, they knew about kingdoms. They knew about Herod's kingdom. They knew about Rome's kingdom. So to use this, this terminology, the kingdom of God, that has a certain tenor to it. And so when Mark starts this gospel and saying, this whole thing is about a politic of the kingdom of God, not of Caesar, not of Herod, not of the elite, not of the high priest, the original audience would have known where this was going. And over the first half of the gospel, then, you begin to see this Jesus. And where does he go? He doesn't go to the big cities. The biggest city you'll find him in, in Mark, or up until Jerusalem, is Capernaum. And there's real speculation if that even counts as a city. Where he goes is to these peasant little villages on the fringes of society. The very people that Herod and the high priest and Pilate have written off. The very people that Herod and Pilate and the high priest have impoverished. Those are the people that this itinerant rabbi goes to. And he heals them and he teaches them and he drinks with them and he has food with them. He laughs with them. They have parties. Their parties were probably so much funner than ours. By the way, that reminds me. Because we're t um, toning down Holy Week this week, I do want to challenge, um, I want to challenge anyone that would do this with me. It's, it's my goal to do it. But if you have not yet watched The Chosen, um, season one is out. There's eight episodes. Some episodes are like 45 minutes. Some episodes are 20 minutes. But if you want a good rhythm of Holy Week for your family, I would just encourage you to watch The Chosen. The first episode of season two comes out on Easter Sunday, and I think we're going to watch it the Wednesday after Holy Week. So anyway, if you want a Holy Week rhythm, we've canceled most of it so that you can watch The Chosen. Go for it. I, reminded, I was reminded of that because they have a party scene. It's pretty epic. So the first half of Mark, Jesus is going, and he is embodying the realities of king, the kingdom by teaching and healing um, by feeding 5,000. And by the way, why does he feed 5,000? Not because he wants to schedule another worship service at the end of the day so he can do another Billy Graham-type altar call. He feeds the 5,000 because you have a bunch of peasants who don't have food. But it's interesting that throughout Mark, you get these little moments that pop up. And I encourage you, go read Mark this week as you prepare for Easter, where Jesus, over the first half of the gospel, just says this constantly, don't tell anybody. Peter, whatever you do, do not log on to Instagram. Don't put that out there. Don't put, a, don't put a Facebook story up. Don't tell anybody. He heals a blind man. Don't tell anybody. Why? Aren't those the kind of things you want to tell? I, we could have a really nerdy conversation about that, but I'm convinced that part of the reason he says don't tell anybody is because they had in their minds what Messiah would look like, and Jesus needed to... Uh, we might say, deconstruct their version of Messiah so he could reconstruct who he was going to be. At about chapter 8 of Mark, then things begin to switch. You have that epic scene where Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter gets the right answer, you are Messiah. And from there on, you get these three scenes over the next three chapters where Jesus begins to teach the disciples, okay, yes, but this is what Messiah is. It's not, it's not the new Pharaoh. It's not horses. It's not chariots. It's gold. Messiah is going to suffer. Messiah is going to go to the cross. You even have that scene in chapter 8 where Peter says, yeah, Jesus, you have no clue what you're talking about. Let me tell you what Messiah is. And ultimately, Jesus says to him, Peter, get behind me, Satan. You get these three chapters where the disciples just continue to not get it. So often we in the church, don't we always find ourselves in chapter after chapter after chapter where we just don't get it? Doesn't 2020 just sometimes feel like one of those chapters? 
probably at the height of that not getting it is James and John coming to Jesus and saying, hey, when the kingdom finally comes, can we sit on your right? Can we sit on your left? Can we be the secretary of defense and the treasure secretary? To which Jesus says, oy vey. But ultimately, that leads us to this chapter 11 where Jesus says, go get a cult to two of his disciples. By the way, do you want to make a bet? Christian, you want to make a bet? The gospel doesn't tell us which people he says, which disciples he sends, but I know who did it. I am convinced that the two disciples Jesus sends to go get the ass, am I allowed to say that? It's a donkey. I just did. Sorry, Grandma. It's a donkey. That's what it means. It's Peter and John. No, not Peter and John. James and John. I'm absolutely convinced that the two people that Jesus sends to go get the donkey, the A-double crooked letter, is the two people that ask to sit on the right and the left. It has to be, right? I want to make that bet. Let's make a bet. Anyone want to make a bet? Oat milk latte in heaven. Ken Steve? Ken Steve shrugged his shoulders. That was not very interesting to him. Whatever. Ken Steve, will you forgive me for saying that word? It is a donkey, though. It's appropriate, appropriate usage. And so here we have Jesus coming in on a donkey. There's this book, and again, I think this is one of those things Terry Matson's been saying for years, but I, I didn't listen until I stumbled upon this book. And again, I, I'm trying to throw out different ideas for your Holy Week. If some of you want to, I think a really fascinating book. My goal is to listen to this book. I don't read, I listen. Josh got me going on that. Um, it's on Audible. It's called The Last Week of Jesus. It's by... Um, Marcus Borg and somebody else. I can get you the author if you want it. It's, you're not going to think this is the, you know, this, this is the sexiest reading about Jesus ever, but it's, it's deeply meaningful. But this book, I, I, I'm one chapter in for today, and this book says that it is likely that on this day, or at least around this day, there would have been two parades. On the one hand, you would have had Jesus coming in on a cult. We'll talk about that quote-unquote parade in a minute. But on the other side of town, you would have had another parade, the parade of Pilate coming in with his legion of army on horses, with their, with their armor clanging, with the sun draping down and shining off of their armor. Like this show of force that says, hey, I know this is Passover. I know this is the time you all think about what, what happened with Moses, and you hope it's going to happen again. But just in case you get an idea, we're bringing all these people, and they have guns. So don't try anything. So on one side, you have this parade, this show of force. And on the other side of town, this book says and speculates, and I think it's, it's, it makes a good case. On the other side of town, you have this other parade. But I want to suggest to you that this other parade is not so much a parade, but a protest. A protest of this kid who grew up in a peasant village who heard rumors of a town four miles away from him where those who were elite came in and killed off an entire village and crucified and sold people into slavery. A kid who had grown up having a deeper sense and awareness that he might, he might be created for something more or maybe he might be connected to something more. A kid that ultimately went through the baptismal waters and had an encounter with the divine that went into the wilderness that then went and traveled and experienced community with the people that the elite would not associate with. And who now picks a donkey and enters in knowing that what he's doing is not just having a good religious festival, but is really political theater. Read Zechariah chapter 9. 
And he is entering into this pathway, protesting the very type of parade that would have happened on the other side of the city. I think so often in the church, we, we come to Palm Sunday and we think, you know, Hosanna, and so we get all the kids dressed up in their best little kiddo, uh, uh, you know, clothes, dresses, ties, and we give them like fake palm branches and they wave them and we sing a nice Hosanna uh, 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 song, worship song. And we, you know, we pray and it's, it's fun, it's neat, it's cute. And we'll do that again, by the way, because Parker needs his chance. He hasn't had his chance yet. He's going to butcher it. It's going to be great. He's probably going to push his brother. But this crowd following this man riding on a donkey was not a worship service where we're going to parade our kids so we, we look like a cool worship church that has young families. The literal meaning of Hosanna is save us. So to, to in a protest chant save us is a lot closer to chanting the words I can't breathe than it is to singing a 21st century modern worship song. It's a lot closer to saying the words, stop Asian hate, than it is to singing a kumbaya song at church that hopes to get people some goose pimples. And so I'm convinced on a day like this as we're getting ready to start Holy Week, in a world where we've been through a year of pandemic, a year... Well, you know the year. But this is, in fact, a time where, once again, we need to tell me the stories of Jesus. We need to experience for all it's worth an itinerant rabbi who will not be okay with the world upside down. And who will give himself to an alternative, alternative reality, even as that alternative reality will take his life. And so the question on a Palm Sunday for the church isn't so much how many kids did we have waving palm branches to a catchy tune. The question is which parade are we going to attend? Pilots or the protest? May we not settle for power and wealth and prosperity, but may we this week especially be captured by an alternative vision of the world that is unwilling to relent and must stand up participating in all the protests that need participated in because we've been captured by the imagination of love itself. Amen.